0: of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this word. It is our desire to glorify you and our responses to it. Pray that you would strengthen me and enable the weakness of flesh to be able to communicate the glories of your word. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There was a newspaper reporter that had run out of things to report on, and he was fishing around for stories, and he thought he'd interview a millionaire. Uh, He had talked to a couple and couldn't get interviews, but this one guy granted him an interview and he said, well, how did you uh, gain your wealth? And the guy said, well, started off by selling, uh, buying peanuts for five cents a bag and selling them for 10 cents a bag and I just worked my tail off. I worked day and night, didn't take any holidays, but it was another five years before I became a millionaire and the reporter said, "Well, well, how did that happen? And he laughed and he said, well, that's when Daddy died and I inherited his fortune. <laughs> now, that's the way many people wish that success could happen to us. It'd just get dumped in our laps. Now, this past Monday, Jonathan was showing me some footage that uh, Colton had taken on the Revolution Conference. Actually, he had done a trailer for the Revolution that's on the webs on Pipers, it's all over the place, actually. But... In that uh, trailer, the, the, the camera is panning on the back of a T-shirt that says, Do Hard Things. And I love that T-shirt because really anything that is of any value in life, that is of any eternal significance, requires doing hard things. And uh, the things that are easy for you now, uh, once probably were very hard for you to do, and uh, prepares the way to do more hard things in the future. And uh, I don't want you to get me wrong. I think we can go through life without doing a lot of hard things, but your life will be wasted. Your life is not going to have any eternal significance if you do that. Now, let me share with you a story that I, I know years ago I have shared, but um, uh, I, I think it illustrates this principle very well. During the time of the Reformation, there were two Martins. There was Martin of Basil and there was Martin Luther. They both got converted about the same time. And uh, Martin of Basel uh, was very fearful of making a public confession. It would cost too much. It would uh, be something that would be one of those hard things. And so he took the easy way. Instead, he made his confession just to God. He wrote on a piece of paper, O most merciful Christ, I know that I can be saved only by the merit of thy blood. Holy Jesus, I acknowledge thy sufferings for me. I love thee. I love thee. And then he removed a stone from the wall, hid the piece of paper in there, and shoved the stone back in the wall. And it wasn't discovered for another hundred years. Now, at the same time, Martin Luther wrote, My Lord confessed me before men. I will not shrink from confessing him before kings. Now, that was a hard thing to do, but it was a world a transforming thing and the world knows uh, Martin Luther the world was changed by Martin Luther but who knows about Martin of Basil actually you know about him now but who cares about Martin uh, of Basil <laughs> um, and what I want to say to you this morning is you can be like Martin of Basil just by ignoring the hard things of life but I would encourage you not to do so. Uh, This morning, the the sermon is going to look at five hard things that Paul was regularly engaged in. And I think these are, in part, uh, an explanation of some of the success that he had. The first is that Paul was a team player. And you can see that throughout the whole book. But in this section, I just want you to notice all of the they's. The word they occurs 15 times in these short uh, eight verses So this is not a gig where Paul is the only one who is doing the work and the only one who is taking the credit. No, he works as with his whole team. And in the next chapter, we're going to be seeing that uh, his team takes a big hit when they're divided up into two groups, but he recognizes it's so important to have a team, and so he brings team members together again, and he does this a number of times. What is remarkable is that Paul had tendencies toward isolation. Uh, he wasn't the easiest guy to get along with, and I think that's pretty clear. Almost every biography that you would read uh, indicates that. But he compensated for his gruffness uh, with three things. Uh, first of all, despite his gruffness, he constantly demonstrated a a self-sacrificing love for the brethren. He was willing to lay down his life for the brethren. And I think people are willing to put up with a lot of odd things in your life if they know that you really love them. The second thing that he showed, and you can see this all throughout his epistles, he had this habit of praising people, praising them all the time. Even when he's going to be giving them some criticism, it's remarkable how much praise that you see him giving in the epistles. The third thing we see is he never worked by himself. He knew the dangers of isolationism. Proverbs 18, verse 1 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. Okay, That's doing the easy thing. That's the, the, the thing that comes naturally. He seeks his own desire. Uh, he rages against all wise judgment. Now, let me define what I mean by team playing because there's a lot of people who give different definitions of this. In fact, I read a an article uh, by a lady who is uh, executive in, in a company on the, her frustration with the differences between men and women on what they considered to be team uh, playing. She said to women, good team players work together well. They tend to consider other team members' feelings and listen to their ideas. They work to attain consensus in the group and strive for decisions that will be for the good of the group as a whole. To this end, the female manager will often ask her people for their views and discuss her own ideas with them before making decisions. She may also explain the reasons for her decisions. Now I've seen a lot of examples to the contrary, but anyway, this is her opinion. She goes on. To most men, however, a good team player is one who does what the coach says. Team sports depend on players following instructions and there is no room for discussion. In the business world, therefore, the male manager is the coach and he expects his instructions to be followed. He usually pronounces his decision and sees no need to explain his reasons. I think it's a little bit of a stereotype there and I'm not buying into that either or dichotomy. In fact, later in chapter 15, we're going to be seeing that the team that Paul set up Looked quite different than the team that Barnabas uh, set up, and yet Barnabas was able to effectively minister in both of those, uh, both of those um, uh, atmospheres. Uh, After looking at the uh, several synopses of uh, Paul's life and biographies of Paul's life, I am convinced that his teams did not even remotely resemble some of the psychologically manipulated team atmospheres that are promoted in some very progressive uh, corporations, uh, he would probably have failed, have flunked out on some of the church planter assessment um, uh, examinations that are given and some of the personality profiles. I was actually surprised at some of the the gains and uh, inane <laughs> exercises that some of these uh, corporations have people go through, you know, lifting, have about 15 straps on a thing, lifting them, trying to get the golf balls to go into the thing, trying to develop team uh, spirit. I don't know, to me that, that would have been a little bit embarrassing, but Paul was not either an autocrat nor was he a feminized man. Uh, he didn't use gimmicks. He avoided abusive leadership, uh, the kind of abusive leadership you find in Ezekiel 34 and uh, the book of 3 John. Paul shows remarkable spirit-led leadership. And I want to look at seven features that you will find, seven features of team playing. You'll find in the various ministries that are described in the Bible, no matter how diverse they are, from uh, David's uh, 400 men that had gathered around him to uh, the small teams, ministry teams that Paul was uh, leading. And uh, it's summarized in your outlines under the acrostic fasting. The F is for flexible. Flexible. I think Barnabas was more flexible than Paul, but both of them were incredibly flexible in adapting to new situations, the pressures, changes of plan. I don't think you can read through chapters 13 and 14 without realizing, man, these guys had to adapt to all kinds of new situations. And this was a characteristic of all of the team members. Well, with the exception of John Mark, who had to learn that down the road. And you can find other team members who leave in the epistles who did not have that kind of flexibility. But this is one of the characteristics that made for a good team player uh, in the Bible. They had to adapt on the fly to new circumstances as they came up. And by the way, this is one of the things that they give testing on when they go on ministry teams to China. They don't have flexibility. There is no way they're going to last once they're in the country. The A is for available. Obviously, if a person doesn't have time, uh, to be on the team. He's not going to be able to play. And sometimes there can be seasons of life. It just may not be your time to be on this particular team or you may not be qualified. The S is for submissive. It uh, doesn't matter whether the person is a team member or whether he is a leader. He has got to have learned submission. And interestingly... In Third John, it indicates that the, the reason that Diotrephes, or at least one of the reasons that Diotrephes was engaging in abusive leadership, was that he himself was not in submission. This is the irony that you find in the Scriptures. Uh, Diotrephes is a name that's uh, rare in the Greek. It was used only of aristocrats. And so some people assume he was aristocrat. There's no way he's going to submit to a peasant like uh, the Apostle John. But whatever the case, it was his pride that led him... To love to have the preeminence, that was the first characteristic of abusive leadership, to engage in gossip, to refuse John's apostolic authority, to reject input and teaching of others, to control the actions of the group, down to the level where he told them who they could and could not invite into their home, you know, engaging in hospitality and then ejecting people from the fellowship simply because they would not submit to his abusive uh, leadership control. And so that's the irony. People who never submit to authority many times end up having the kind of abusive leadership that uh, goes way beyond what the Scripture would say is legitimate calls for submission. But all team members need to learn this. I've found many times that mothers are frustrated with their unsubmissive children, and yet they've been modeling to them all along uh, lack of submission to their husbands and i've seen dads doing exactly the same thing in which the, the way in which they talk about their bosses and the way in which they talk uh, about the elders and so submission the t stands for teachable uh, a know-it-all can help the team out for a time but if he persists in being unteachable uh, he's going to end up being a problem in the long run the i stands for initiative uh, without initiative a team member is going to be a drain instead of an asset to the team but that's got to be balanced with all of the other things otherwise he's just going to go off in his own direction he's not going to be a team player Uh, the n stands for networkable and i couldn't think of a better uh, n word than that but the idea the ability to work uh, together there are some people who simply will not fit on a team you can give them solo assignments they'll do great at that There's no way they're going to be able to work together on a team. Uh, MTW, Mission to the World, uh, screens some of the members that are going out onto the mission field because they want to make sure that under the pressures of the mission field, the team's not going to just fall apart because these people are at each other. They're going to be united and they're working against the pressures that are outside. But it's not just an issue of character in terms of networkable, but also a mix of people as well. If you had nothing but polls on a team, I don't think that would work very well either. And so uh, uh, not every team member is going to work on every team. And then finally, he needs to be growing. If you aren't growing, you're diminishing because there is no neutrality in life. Uh, you're either moving forward or you're moving backward. And so it's a person committed to growing. Which leads us to the second of the five hard things that these men did. They pressed forward despite opposition and discouragement and apparent failure. If you look at Lystra, their last place, didn't last very long. It seems like they were kicked out on the first day they started preaching. And so after Paul gets um, stoned with rocks, uh, he went back into the city of Lystra And then he presses on to the new post of Derby. Apparently, he stayed in Derby for quite some time because it says in verse 21, "...when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples." So it implies there was a long period of time. But it was preaching that uh, got uh, Paul stoned. And if there was a good reason for him to go on furlough and to take a vacation, this would have been it. Uh, Many a lesser person would have just allowed this to take the wind of enthusiasm completely... Out of their sails but paul was committed to doing the hard thing if it was the right thing to do there is a place for vacation paul took vacations christ took vacations nothing wrong with that but it wasn't a a situation because it was so difficult he just lost his enthusiasm and he gave up now god is gracious and in derby there isn't any opposition no persecution and to me, I think this is God giving him a rest. He knows exactly how much the team can take. And I think that can be an encouragement as well. We can trust God. If we're going forward as God has called us to do, we can trust Him to not give more than we can handle. Point B, uh, they, neither were they content with merely winning converts. Verse 21 says, they made many disciples. Now, the word for disciple means one who was engaged in, quote, the study of the law... With a view to knowing and doing God's will, unquote. And it can have the idea of an apprentice, but in the New Testament it's the idea of uh, finding out what all of the Bible says and learning how to apply all of the Bible. It goes way beyond simply winning new converts. And this is a problem that I have with many versions of missions that are out there. Very aggressive and getting converts, but they're not making disciples. They're not showing a a brand new businessman how to run his business to God's glory with biblical economics. They're not showing a new politician who has just come to Christ how to apply biblical law. They're not showing a mother who comes to Christ, showing her the ropes and showing her the skills and the character issues of Titus chapter 2. So there's a big difference between making a disciple and simply making a convert. making disciples is a hard difficult task but if the church is to press forward it is an essential thing and i want you to notice another uh, aspect about that in verse 21 it says paul preached the gospel to that city it's interesting he doesn't say to the people of that city it was the city itself he was trying to convert uh, see, Peter Wagner uh, points out that Paul's goal in all of his mission trips, in all of the cities that he visited, was to win the entire city to Christ. Now, that may seem like an absolutely ridiculous, audacious uh, kind of a goal to be setting, and yet uh, this was the goal. He had this desire for nation discipling, nor were Paul and his team scared away from the previous persecuting cities. Uh, Because God had called them, verse 21 says, they returned. And then the purpose for their returning was to take the previous churches to the next level. So can you see that? They're constantly pressing uh, forward. Now, if you examine the cities that are listed in verses 24 through 25, you'll see what Paul was doing is he was backtracking the same way that he came from. In fact, I've copied on the back of your outlines uh, three uh, maps that you can look at. And we're going to summarize the purpose for going back, uh, getting these people to grow deeper in verse 22, but I just want to highlight the geography. If you look at the arrows on the top, it shows uh, where they've been and where he was going back uh, on that journey. Now, if he had just continued southeast from Derby, it would have been another 90 miles to the coast on very easy roads, and then it would have been uh, an easy sail back to Antioch of Syria. A beautiful road. Or alternatively, he could have taken a jaunt over to his old home of Tarsus and again, that would have been on a very good road. Uh, and uh, the second map is the Roman roads. The third map shows um, the national major highways that go, went through that region. Now, the reason I point that out is Paul was not just looking for the quickest way home, the easiest way uh, to get back on, on a vacation or on a sabbatical, He is deliberately going back the difficult way. We saw that the route that he took to Iconium was incredibly treacherous, incredibly difficult road. So he is going back, not to find the easiest way, but because he's wanting to ground these people deeper in the Word of God. It shows his pastoral heart. And so I want to look at Roman numeral 3, the third hard thing that Paul not only promotes, but it's a hard thing that the churches themselves adopt, and embrace it's to grow deeper in our walk with God and you can see that in a number of um, words here first of all the word disciples that occurs in verse 22 Uh, we've already seen the meaning of the word disciple but you can find it defined in many places as well like in the great commission Uh, the great commission is not just a commission to make converts it's a commissioned to make disciples, and it says, "We're to disciple the nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Well, what did Christ command? Well, in Matthew 5, He commands them to teach and to obey all of the Old Testament laws, including the least of these commandments, He says. And so, it it takes a great deal of of teaching to move people forward. It's a constant growth process as they understand the Word better and understand how, how to apply it better. Now, contrast that with a current view that all the Great Commission is about is getting converts. Here's Jack Hiles' interpretation. He says, notice the four basic verbs. Go, preach, baptize, teach. Oh, no. Go, preach, baptize, teach them again, is what he says. You teach them something after you get them saved and baptized. What do you teach them? To observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Now, what did he command us to do? Go preach, baptize, then teach what he commanded us to do. So we teach them to go preach and baptize, that they may teach their converts to go preach and baptize. And so his version of the Great Commission is simply to make new converts. Well, it's much easier, but God has called us to do the hard thing. It's to make disciples. And some people say, you know, the extent to which the Scripture defines disciples, that's a tough thing. How do you disciple nations? But God calls us to do those hard things. By the way, this is one of the reasons why Paul has to go back to strengthen them. And he knows it's going to be hard. And so verse 22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples. He wants them to grow deeper in their walk with Christ. And so that means he's going to have to teach them and coach them. And he's going to have to rebuke them and correct and redefine and refine what they're doing. So if you're not growing stronger, automatically you're growing weaker. It's just like our, our muscles We don't use them. They begin to get flabby, don't they? And so he's calling us to exercise our our spiritually flabby muscles and to make them stronger in the Lord. Verse 22 goes on to say, exhorting them to continue in the faith. So easy to fall away when we don't have accountability. This is why Hebrews 10 connects isolation with apostasy. Apostasy. Uh, let me read Hebrews 10:24 through 25, which is frequently taken, quoted out of context. But it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approach. But the whole context after that tells us the reason why they need to be doing this with each other it's so that they don't fall away. The next verse starts with a four, gives the reasons why now. And as he goes through there, he's talking about apostasy. And he ends that section by saying this. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But, if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So let me just contrast here. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints has a counterfeit that's out there in the church today, and it's called once saved, always saved. There's quite a difference between those two. Once saved, always saved. Now, some people, I, I think, are meaning by that, perseverance of the saints, but frequently the way that that is used is it means once you've put your faith in Christ, that you can apostatize, you can live like the devil, and you're still going to heaven. Whereas perseverance of the saints says no. Every person must persevere or he is not saved. If he is the elect, he will persevere, and it's God's grace that will enable him to persevere, but without perseverance there is no salvation. It says it's what marks the difference between false believers and those who are true believers. True believers will persevere in the the things of the Lord. In any case, uh, Hebrews 10 says that God does that in the context of the body. And then comes a very interesting phrase. Saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now that's said in the context of, of the perseverance of the saints And I love that phrase because I think it is a broadside against modern wimped out Christianity. I want you to notice four things about that phrase. First, there are tribulations. Second, those tribulations are not an option. Paul says we must. Uh, Third, it is through tribulations that we enter the kingdom. And fourth, this means that entering the kingdom is not a one time event. Let me explain what I mean by that. Not a one time event. Uh, until the second coming of Christ, we're gonna keep praying, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now in heaven, His revealed will is perfectly done, right? But on earth, that's not the case. And so what we are praying is that God's will would be as perfectly done on earth as, as it is being done in heaven. Well, for that to happen, His kingdom has to come more and more in the world, in the church, in the families, and in our lives individually. If we're going to be uh, having His will done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we enter the kingdom at conversion. We enter it more and more deeply as we continue to grow in life. And then there's the final uh, example, not example, the final uh, way in which we enter the kingdom when we die and we go into heaven. But every one of those stages of entering the kingdom involves tribulations. We shouldn't think of tribulation as only persecution. Death is one kind of tribulation that the Bible uh, talks about. And there are many other kinds of tribulation. Uh, Any difficulties, any hardships are tribulations. And so this is a theological statement that stands in total contrast to the health and wealth gospel. It is not simply backslidden Christians who face tribulation. As uh, so many people want to affirm, there must be something wrong with you if you got tribulation. Because if you had real faith, you know, you'd be healthy and you'd be wealthy. No, that's not what the scripture says. It says all of us are going to be going through that. We must go through that. It is not avoidable. Now just think of the spiritual warfare side of tribulation. Preaching the kingdom out there in the world means automatically we are invading Satan's territory and he's not going to take it lying down. He's going to fight back, right? And so automatically, there's going to be the tribulation that comes from Satan fighting against us. But it's not just satanic uh, warfare. Just trying to grow in your own spiritual walk means your flesh is going to fight against you, right? And the world system is going to be resisting what you are doing. So there's going to be tribulation. But there are times where God brings tribulation into our lives just to enable us to grow. He wants us uh, to grow uh, in Him. They do clearly have a role. Kingdom growth is one of the hard things we must do. The fourth hard thing is developing leaders. Verse 23 says, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, obviously, we're going to be talking about development of church leaders, but I want you guys to apply this, all of these principles, to your family as well. Um, to, to, To... to to raise up your children to be leaders is a hard thing. Uh, just to feed them food and to see them finally get out of your home, that's not a hard thing. I mean, it can be hard. You pull out your hair sometimes with that, but you're really going to have times where you're pulling out your hair. You're really going to have times where this is tough to move your children into leadership. So apply it to your families as well, even though I'm going to be primarily applying it uh, to the church. The first thing that we see about these leaders is that there has been quite a delay in ordaining them. I think that's significant. The total trip from the beginning of chapter 13 through chapter 14, verse 26, takes a little bit over two years. It goes from 45 to 47 AD. Now, the return trip, we know, is a lot more rapid than the trip that came up here, so most of the trip is up through verse 20 of chapter 14. Now, I'll just mention in verse 28, it mentions uh, a long time there. Uh, That's an additional two years that he's going to be spending in in Antioch. So it appears that for many of the churches he has preached to, there are many months and upwards of two years that they have not had elders in those churches. Now, to me, this shows four things. First, it shows that churches can survive without elders. When I was preaching through the book of Titus, we saw that there were churches there that have been churches for quite some time without elders. We saw it as not a healthy thing. It's not a good thing. But still, they did survive. And this underscores and this highlights the biblical truth that it's not leaders who are the only ones commissioned with ministry. Every single believer is supposed to be a minister. Don't think of these churches for the last two years as having done nothing. You know, just sitting, waiting, hoping some leader is going to come along so that ministry can happen here. No, they've been engaging in ministry all the time. Now, there have been a number of times in China and in other countries where the entire leadership of the church in a region has been put into jail. Completely zapped all the leadership out of the church, but the church did not die. It continued to thrive. Uh, why? Because people are engaging in ministry and gradually as people are ministering, it becomes evident God is raising new leaders out of the mix. And so churches can survive without elders. It's called body life. A second thing that it shows to me is that elder training is largely on-the-job training. Now, Paul had given them theological training beforehand. He had given them theological training afterwards. But while he was gone, the emerging leaders are simply engaging in ministry. They're being tested. And when Paul and his team examine the elder candidates, what they're looking for is degree of maturity, calling, character, ministry competencies that they have been developing over the past two years. Over time, certain people begin to rise to the surface and the church begins to recognize, hey, these guys really have what it takes uh, to be able to be leaders. But you don't learn that in school. You learn it by doing ministry. The third thing that I see is that it takes time to develop good leaders. Now, I should point out that um, most of the leaders here, many commentaries feel most of the leaders that arose probably had already been well-grounded In the Old Testament because they came out of the synagogues only one of the cities didn't have leaders that were that were converted out of the synagogues but even though even though they had leaders who were grounded in the Old Testament Paul still waits he wants the church to be able to evaluate and see what are these guys capable of are these people really uh, a ministry he doesn't rush into ordination process it takes time to develop good leaders but most of the what I wanted to point out, most of the development was done without the apostles. They were just doing ministry like everyone else, and so they were demonstrating initiative. The fourth thing that it shows is that it takes a plurality of elders to ordain other elders, and that's implied by the word they in verse 23. Now we know this from other scriptures, but here you can see it illustrated. Leaders uh, cannot ordinarily be ordained by lay people. We've already seen that they were selected by the lay people. They're ordained by the elders. Now, the the nature of the leadership can be seen by the word elders itself. Word has two meanings. First, an older man, well advanced in years. And second, an officer of the synagogue and later in the church. Uh, One dictionary says, quote, denotes age, rank, or the old or older man who is no longer a neoniskos or young man, and is probably over 50 years old, unquote. But there was no such thing as a young elder. Okay, the minimum age for an elder was 30 years in the Scripture, and there was a good reason for that. Now, Jews had elevated status for those who were 40 and those who were were 50, but when Paul told Timothy, don't let anybody despise your youth, he was already in his 40s. Uh, And again, this takes patience. Uh, for people to wait and to develop their their experience to that uh, level. It takes maturity and experience to guide the church. And I just want to make a quick comment on the way these elders were selected because in our version it doesn't come out very uh, clearly. New King James says, "...so when they had appointed elders in every church." Now, the literal Greek is, "...when they had appointed by a show of hands." It's the Greek term that was used for elections, uh, election process. Paul's team oversaw the process. They did the ordination, but the people chose the officers. And let me uh, read you how some other translations translate this. When they had ordained them elders by election in every church. That was the bishop's Bible. When they had ordained them elders by election in every congregation. That was Tyndale's translation. They selected elders by show of hands, waymouth, having appointed to them by vote elders in every assembly. That's Young's literal translation. Uh, I think the Greek is very clear that the people are the ones who choose their officers. Now, because I've preached an entire series on church government, we won't get into that right now, but this does show the importance of leadership. I want you to notice here that these elders were selected or appointed, it says, in every church. Every church. Even though they had a long wait, indefinitely waiting is not a good thing. Churches need leadership, and the ideal is that every single church have elders, plural. Every church singular needs to have elders, plural. And of course, there are dangers with leadership as well. We've already referenced Ezekiel 34 and 3 John as passages that warn about uh, abusive leadership. And that may be in part why verse 23 says, and prayed with fasting. Yeah, it could be a scary thing. They wanted to know what God's will was. They wanted God's leading, his guidance in the selection process. So they took it very seriously. And if you ever go into voting for a person without asking God for his guidance, without taking seriously, you're very foolish because leaders can make or break a church. We've got to take this very seriously. The last aspect of leadership development uh, that is mentioned is that he trusted God to guide the church. Verse 23, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And the question is, did they commend the congregation to the Lord or the leaders to the Lord or both? And Hendrickson says even though the context seems to indicate leaders, really he believes that it's indicating he, he, he commended them both uh, to the Lord. But whatever the case, we do have to trust God at some point and let things move forward. We're never going to have all the information that we need, uh, which means there's always the potential for mistakes. We're never going to have all the training that we need, which means there's potential for people to fall. Uh, but at some point, you got to trust the Lord. you got to move forward. Leadership is hard to develop. It's hard to select. And once you're a leader, man, it's hard to do. <laughs> it's uh, what God calls us to to do. Do hard things. The last hard thing that Paul did was to be accountable. Now, you might think the apostle wouldn't have to be accountable. I mean, he's, he's the direct pipeline from God. Why would he have to be accountable? But uh, one of the things the Scripture points out is absolutely everyone, including the apostles, were accountable. And we can see that accountability hinted at in verses 26 through 28, all the way through chapter 15, you can see it as well. But just take a look at verse 26. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now, the phrase, where they had been commended, that's referring back to the beginning of chapter 13 where these guys had been commissioned to go out. Now they're reporting. They said, okay, we've done the task that you've commissioned us to do. It's exactly the same language that verse 23 says that Paul's team was doing for the elders. They were commending them to their ministry. And so, that, that phrase hints that the leadership in Antioch was the oversight of Paul's team. They were the ones to whom they were accountable. But it's probably more than simply oversight. It was a prayer base as well. Now, many commentators point out that's probably where they raised most of their support for their missionary trips. Uh, It was where many of their team members came from. It was a base of operations from which they went out on three missionary journeys to which they reported back. And so there was accountability. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why I think our denomination is wrong to have a missions, MTW, out of the national offices, general assembly, rather than out of the presbyteries. It's out of the presbyteries, which is what Antioch was, It's out of the presbyteries where you're going to have the most accountability, the best fellowship, the most support, uh, and that's what's modeled, I believe, in the New Testament. It's a presbytery-level sending of uh, of missionaries out and accountability uh, uh, for missions. The reporting comes in verse 27. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And commentators point out it's the imperfect tense, so it wasn't a report that happened all at once. It was over a period of time. And so it could be one of two things. Either they broke up their story into different parts and gave it to the whole congregation, or more likely what he did is he was going to all of the congregations. And there was tons of congregations by this time in the church at Antioch. And he was reporting to these churches, the ones who had been supporting him, he was saying, okay, I want to bring back the joy of what your money and what your prayers and all of your labors have uh, helped to achieve. Uh, this reporting gives opportunity for cross-pollinization. It also brings controversy in chapter 15, but it enables the church to mature as it faces the challenges of growth. And then verse 28 ends by saying, so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. It's been a very strenuous trip that they've been on and they need a furlough. Uh, They need a break from what they had been doing. Paul was probably still sick, may have needed some healing. So it's a place to recuperate, minister. Yes, they're continuing to work, but it's in a much less stressful atmosphere. They're getting re-energized, and it's good to have a home you can go back to and relax. On that Revolution uh, uh, blog uh, site, Alex and Brett Harris relayed how rest and fun fits into their doing of hard things. They said there are two principles. First one, do first things first. They say being a revolutionary does not mean you have erased fun from your life, it means that you have relegated it to its proper place. Do hard things does not eliminate fun, but it elevates, honors, and recognizes the superiority of the activities and pursuits that strengthen, stretch, and grow our character and competence for the glory of God. And then they go on to talk about all of the fun things they do after a hard work week of work and how they they know how to relax. Second thing they say is hard things can be fun in their own right. And I would say amen to both of those principles. Paul found satisfaction in doing the hard things, but he also found fulfillment and satisfaction in resting. And and, and and recreation. He was able to do both. And so this sermon is not a call to avoid all fun. It's a call to realign your priorities and to do hard things. And many of those hard things, as I've mentioned, uh, will eventually become easy things, uh, which will graduate you into doing more hard things. But let's be a people who rise to the challenge of facing the hard things that God gives us the privilege of doing. And let's be a people who not only wear our T-shirts, you know, but who actually do the hard things. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, and I pray that... Even as Paul and his team engaged in some of the things that just seem to uh, call out incredible endurance and perseverance, that we would be willing to take risks, to face pain, to have to endure, and even to face some unpleasant things to be able to find the fulfillment of your well done, thou good and faithful servant. Make us to be a a, a people who does not uh, neglect hard things, but uh, embraces them when you have called us to them. Uh, Father, may we not be put on a shelf, may we not be uh, a people who uh, uh, become uh, 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 wasted with our lives and do not have lives that count for eternity, but may we be a people that uh, uh, do exploits, as Daniel said, because we believe you. We believe uh, that you are able and that uh, we are able by your grace uh, to do the things you have called us to Uh, Father, we recognize that without You we can do nothing, but we thank and praise You for that statement that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.